Welcome, everyone, to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Here we go indeed. Sitar music. All right, all right. Well, hello, guys. Uh, Welcome back to the Two Tongues Podcast. Uh, Another solo episode today. Um, Just an extension of last last week. So we did uh, in our in our uh, attempts to tackle Plato um, last week. We we did a deep dive on the pre-Socratic philosophers. So all those very intelligent Greeks that lived before Socrates that influenced um, that influenced Plato I mean uh, and Socrates for that matter Plato's Plato's teacher and what what I found out to my surprise doing that was that uh, there was a lot there a lot more there than I had expected and a lot of really interesting stuff. Uh, shame on me for not knowing any of that stuff ahead of time, but um, maybe I did a little. Uh, the thing is, so many of these philosophers, these ancient Greek philosophers that came before Plato and, and Socrates, those those guys were very mystical. You know, they were saying things that you would you would expect to hear from like a Hindu guru or something, or, or, or like a hippie, you know, from the 60s. And we're hearing, we're hearing these things coming from these, these ancient Greek philosophers that formed the foundation of the Western culture that we live in today. Science, reason, rationality, the enlightenment, you know, all of that stuff came from, from Socrates. And Socrates came from these dudes. And, uh, they had some interesting things to say. Now, it, it, you know, this stuff goes all the way up through the modern day, and you can see it in people like Aristotle, where it sounds a lot like a conversation we might have today, like a, you know, a, a conversation between a bunch of like theoretical physicists trying to talk about the origins of the cosmos. Like, you know, those sorts of ideas were being tossed around in 600 BC in Greece. It's unbelievable, and, and even even far earlier than that. We just don't have record of it. And when they talk, when these philosophers talk about these grand notions about, you know, um, the meaning of life, how the cosmos got here, you know, how, what, what human beings are, what the cosmos is, all of these sorts of grand theories that they came up with, they circle around trying to, trying to figure out what things are made from or what we're made out of. So we talked about Democritus last time, and um, John Dalton was the name I couldn't think of last time. John Dalton is the guy who's uh, considered to be the father of atomic theory, but everything he said, Democritus said in 600 BC. So um, the reason I bring that up is because so many of them did that. 
they're talking about what the, what the universe is made of and what human beings are made of, what, what elements the universe is built from. And, and if you've ever read any of that, you, you, you'll know what I mean. They, they say things like, you know, the, everything is made of these elements, fire, water, earth, air, that kind of thing. Um, and you see that same sort of thing in, in alchemy. And so Carl Jung and Jordan Peterson will talk about it in, in that context. But whether, whether these guys are talking about trying to understand what I am as a human being or trying to understand what the heck the, this, this reality is that I'm existing in, the way that they did that a lot of times was to try to break it down into its component parts and talk about how they're, you know, uh, uh, constituted really. And so much of that is without the benefit of science and experimentation to help them figure out, you know, the truth of it. And what's surprising is how much of it is so accurate. And Democritus is a good example that we talked about last time that this is somebody who said, look, everything in the world is composed of things, uh, on smaller and smaller scales until you get down to, a scale that cannot be divided anymore. And that's what we call an atom. And John Dalton came around in the modern era relatively and said, Democritus was right. We've got these things called protons, neutrons, electrons, and so forth that can't be subdivided. Now, we've since found out that they can be and that there are smaller components, but even still, those are the atoms that Democritus was referring to, the quarks and the gluons and the things that, that make up uh, electrons and protons and neutrons. Those are the things that can't be broken down any further, let's say, whatever it is. But, uh, but it's strange to see somebody's philosophical idea as to their, their best shot at explaining kind of what, the, what, the, what reality is, what the cosmos is. And Democritus happens to be vindicated, happens to be correct about that. You know, not, not in the specifics exactly, but in general, correct about that. Unbelievable. So there's a bunch of this, there's a bunch more, and uh, where we ended last time was maybe like right around the middle part of the 400s BC, so that's where we're going to pick up right now with some more of these uh, these philosophers uh, from ancient Greece. And who's on the docket? Let's see here. All right, so Epicharmus of Syracuse, he's, he's the guy that's coming up next. He lived right around the late to the mid part of the 400s BC. What's interesting about Epicharmus, and I'd never heard of the guy up until now, um, but he wrote comedies. So a lot of the uh, a lot of the ancient Greek, and we talked about this with Plato even. So when Plato told his philosophy, he didn't write it down in a book in a tome and and you know do what so many other philosophers like a after Aristotle did. What he did was he just basically had a conversation. He he had a drama play out. And it reads just like a play, you know, with with parts and characters, and the main character is Socrates, and so um, that's how Plato goes about making these philosophical points. Is he just basically puts a bunch of characters in a room and has them arguing and discussing these things together, and uh, so a lot of the tradition from ancient Greece, whether you're talking about the the dramas, the comedies, the tragedies that were written in ancient Greece that are very famous, but they extend to things like Plato. And apparently, they extend to Epicharmus. And what the, what was interesting about this guy is that he wrote comedies, and they were satires. So 
you can just imagine, uh, I'm trying to think of a good example here, but this is the dry type of comedy, um, maybe a British style of comedy or, or, or a stand-up uh, style of comedy, let's say, where, um, where you're, you're making fun of culture, you're making fun of established things because they're easy targets, everybody understands them, and you can make poke fun at them and people, people get it. So that's what Epicharmus did, but he did it with f- philosophical ideas. So he's basically uh, writing plays uh, that are being performed, and the characters are talking uh, about particular philosophers' ideas and making fun of them. So the value in Epicharmus is not so much the um, the philosophical ideas that are being talked about, but it's the criticisms of them. And it's where other people pick up the banner and say, well, if Epicharmus was making fun of this, that, you know, th- there must be something here. Let's dig into it. Let's, let's figure out what's wrong with this idea. Um, but, but the issue here is that we don't have a, a tremendous amount left of what Epicharmus wrote. And what we do have is extremely, extremely mystical. So that's right up my alley. <laughs> that's what I want to talk about with you today. All right. First thing, there was a uh, idea in Greece that we've talked about before, um, and I'll just re- remind you because it goes with this first quote, that human beings were envisioned as part God, part mortal, um, part earth, part heaven, something like that. So we had this element, this thing called a soul that the Greeks coined, this idea of this immortal and godlike part of our being that's mixed with the... Um, with the material, the earthly, you know, part of our being, which is like our body and, and so forth. And there's, so there's these two things mixed together in a human being. There's the heavenly part, the divine part, and then there's the mortal part or the, you know, the, the kind of ordinary part. And so Epicharmus has this quote and he says, then what is the nature of men? Blown up bladders? Exclamation mark. So this is, again, his jab at saying, what is a man then? Is it, it's an animal. It's made of it's made of material. It's made of earth, and God just blows into it. You know, just blows into it this this immortal bit that we're calling a soul. So, what does that make men? Just blown up bat bladders, just like a like a basketball or something. Is that what we are? So, this is his idea of of again making making satire satirizing that idea that if men are if men are something like you know an earthly container that's been filled up with a spiritual component we call soul then what are we then? Just a blown up bladder? And ha ha ha, this is the joke. So this is where I want to open up with Epicharmus. What is the nature of men? But here we go. Continues. He says, I don't want to die, but but being dead, I don't mind that. So you, can, you, get, you start to get the picture. It's clever little, little sayings that survive that are satirical for the most part. What are humans then? Blown up bladders? I don't want to die, but being dead, I don't mind that. So you get the idea. It is comical, the way that it's written, but it gets better. Here we go. He says, mind sees and mind hears. Everything else is deaf and blind. So I love that. Um, This goes back to a criticism that I made of... uh, listening to the great Joe Rogan's podcast is that this guy doesn't understand that the word mind and the word brain are not, are, are, are different words that mean very different things, but people, people conflate them. So what he's saying here, mind sees and mind hears, he's not talking about the brain. He's talking about consciousness. He's talking about the soul that we just talked about in the last, the last line. He's saying there's something in a human being, consciousness that sees and hears that, that, all of the objective properties of the world that they are known through this thing he's calling mind. 
But everything else is blind and, and deaf, he's saying. What he's saying here is that consciousness is what picks up and, and observes the subjective parts of experience. And those are things like what we're getting from our senses, the way things taste, the way things smell, the way things look, um, all of those things. And everything else is deaf and blind. He's saying that the universe, everything that's not consciousness, doesn't, doesn't experience these qualities of the universe that we do. Things like the way it sounds and tastes and feels. That all of the rest of the universe doesn't have that. It's deaf and blind. The thing that's special, the thing that has these, th these properties, is mind. Okay, let's keep going. He says, if you seek something wise, reflect during the night. And there's a related one a little bit later where he says, uh, Epicarmus, he gave the highest rank among the means of divination to dreams um, because it's not possible to dream by free choice. So this is somebody else's uh, quote um, talking about Epicarmus, some, some ancient philosopher. And, and so, the, again, this is goes tied to this uh, statement he makes about if you're seeking something wise, reflect during the night. Because dreams are important to Epicharmus. And he's saying the reason that dreams are important, the reason that they will tell you things that are valuable, is because you don't control them. <laughs> okay. That's amazing. So dreams are not random, like Carl Jung says, like Jordan Peterson says. They're not random. They're stories. They have, they have references and symbols that have meaning for you and that are attached to and hold networks of meaning that if you study your dreams that you can... You can find messages in the dreams. You can find things that you're trying to tell yourself, that your subconscious is trying to show you. And it does that with, it does that with these images and dreams. And what Epicharmus is pointing out is that that's not something that you control. It's not something that the ego or, or, or that it's a conscious process. It's an unconscious process. Now, Epicharmus lived a long, long time ago, a long time before Freud and Carl Jung. He had no idea about this idea of, a, of an unconscious. And yet even he is saying exactly what Carl Jung and Jordan Peterson would say and Freud would say, uh, that dreams are a window into your drives and instincts and emotions and things that happen behind the scenes that are driving you that you aren't unaware of. What do you call that, Epicharmus? Well, today we call that the unconscious, bud. You got there, you got there before Young by a long shot. So I thought that was interesting. Um, and this goes back to the idea of uh, mind that he was talking about. So I'm going to read these couple for you. He says, the body is earth, but the mind is fire. So this is awesome. We talked about this before. This is just the idea that uh, what a human being is, like a blown up bladder, right? What a human being is, is something like it's from the earth and something that's from, from the heavens. Something spiritual, something, something mortal mixed together. And that's the body, the material part, and the mind, the eternal, immortal part. So his, his quote is, the body is earth but the mind is fire, and that's what we're composed of. Now, remember what I said to you guys before about fire, um, that fire is, it's interesting. It, it, you know, just imagine yourself sitting down, um, you know, at a campfire watching the flames. It's amazing. It's amazing to watch. They flicker, they dance. You can stick your hand right through them. It's like there's nothing there at all, but if you stick your hand in there too long, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to get burned. Fire is an unusual thing. It's, it's unusual. There's nothing like it. And so it, it, you know, it, it, we're interested in that. And we have all of these 
connections with fire. Like fire is something that I said before, it, it, it causes a chemical reaction. It burns something up. It's irreversible. So fire transforms things in an irreversible way. It's also ethereal and hard to pin down exactly what it is. Um, so, so fire has all these connections. Um, and I, and one of them I mentioned before is that in the Islamic tradition, when God creates man, he creates man from clay, just like we, we have that story in the, in the Judeo Christian, uh, Bible. But he says that the angels themselves, that they were created not from clay, but from fire, right? From this ethereal heavenly substance that's not quite real. You can pass your hand right through it, you know? It has, it has force and impact on the material world, but really, it's not quite real. So something very interesting about fire. And he says, um, the, the body's earth, the mind is fire. The next quote that goes along with this, he says, this fire, the fire of the soul, is derived from the sun. And, th- and that's interesting for lots of reasons, because one of the things that Jordan talked about when he, when he was talking about Carl Jung's idea of complexes is he said that you've got these you've got these archetypical ideas are archetypic symbols that live in this that live in the collective unconscious let's say that you have access to and you don't understand them um and so they have connections to all the other things that you don't understand and that's how complexes build up their associations that's why dream interpretation works because you can ask somebody what something means what a picture or image means in a dream or what does it make you think of or what does it make you feel what other ideas or memories are connected to that with you and then that's how you tease out the meaning from the subconscious like that um, and this is what he's saying when he says that fire is derived from the sun He's doing the same thing that the Egyptians and the Mesopotamians did, the ancient Egyptians and Mesopotamians, who said that the that the king of the gods was the god of the sun, and that the sun was associated with consciousness because you see by the light of the sun, and you live by the bounty of the sun, the plants and the warmth and the you know all of the things that the sun provides. These are all associations that we that we have with the sun because why? Because it's hot, because it's a ball of fire in the heavens. So this, so these are all these complexes or these associations uh, that allows this ancient Greek to say that the that the soul that's in my body that's made of fire that it's it partakes of the sun. It's something like the sun. And then he goes on to say, um, and it he's talking about the sun. He says, and the sun is all mind. He says the fire of the soul is derived from the sun. And the sun is all mind. Unbelievable. I'm going to read these again here. The body is earth, but the mind is fire. The fire of the soul is derived from the sun. And the sun is all mind. Okay. So again, remember he said mind is the thing that sees and hears. He's talking about consciousness. So he says the thing that the sun is, that's consciousness. That's mind. And the thing that's the thing that's animating you, that's in your body, your soul, your immortal spark, whatever that is, that's also mind. He says it's just like the sun, and the sun is mind. So, so the thing that animates you, that makes you alive, that's consciousness. And the thing that causes the sun to burn in the in the heavens, that's consciousness. Unbelievable, unfreaking believable, Epicarmus. Keep going, bud. Where where are we? All right, he says. He says the law, this is the word logos again, the logos steers mankind aright and ever preserves them. It says man has calculation, but there's also the divine logos. 
but the human logos is sprung from the divine logos, and it brings to each man his means of life and his maintenance. The divine logos accomplishes all the arts, itself teaching men what they must do for their advantage, for no man discovered any art, but it is always God. Okay, Jesus, let's let's break this down a little bit. Unbelievable. So the idea of the logos is here, and I bring that up because you see it in the Bible. Because when we talked about the Bible, and we talked about in some of these other podcasts uh, about psychedelics in the, in the early Christianity, that there there is this idea that that pops up um, even in the Christian tradition that comes from this ancient Greek tradition, the logos, and that's something that Jesus is referred to as in the, in the New Testament. But it goes all the way back to these pre-Socratic Greeks that talk about it like the law that governs being. Logos is the law that governs being. <clears throat> and he says, he says that, the, that the Logos steers mankind to right, so it shows them how to, how to live properly, and it preserves them. It says men, a man has calculation, so he's a rational thinker, but he says he's also the divine Logos. So mankind is also this pattern that structures being. Then he says, but the human Logos is sprung from the divine Logos, and it brings each man his means of life and maintenance. So this, guys, this is something that jumps right out of the Vedanta, right out of Hinduism, this mystic, ancient mystic Hinduism, where he says, or remember, the Logos is the thing that animates a human being. And he's saying, the human Logos is sprung from the divine Logos. So the, the human soul is sprung from the divine soul, you might say. And that's something that the Hindus said. It's called Brahman and Atman. So Brahman is the soul of God. Atman is the soul of man. And according to Vedanta, you know, you get, you're bestowed your soul, your Atman, from Brahman. It's, it's Brahman. It's God, the creator God. That's the thing that's in you that, that's, that's allowing you to be alive. And this is what Epicharmus is saying. He's saying the human logos sprung from the divine logos, and it brings each man his means of life. Unbelievable. So I don't know what connection, if any, there were between the Greeks and the uh, Hindus in, in India at this period in history. That's something I'd have to look at. I know that the Greeks traveled as far as Egypt because Hesiod talks about it, and they talk about the Egyptian gods all the time. Um, but, uh, you know, and in the Middle East, I mean, Alexander the Great, he marched all the way through, you know, Iraq and Iran. In fact, he got to India. So maybe I'm answering my own question there. Um, I mean, Alexander the Great didn't conquer India. He wasn't able to. You know, there's jungles and elephants, and, you know, it's hard to conquer those people. He didn't succeed in doing that, but he did get all the way there. So maybe there is. Maybe there is some connection. Um, All right, interesting. So let's, the last quote here from Epicharmus is interesting. Maybe another one that's supposed to be satirical, because it's a little bit morbid, but let me read it to you. I am a corpse. A corpse is dung, and dung is earth. If earth is a god, then I am not a corpse, but a god. Woo! Well, I like that. Um, but let's 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 do this. So he's admitting I am a corpse. He's just saying, look, I'm a body, and when I die, it's just going to be a rotten, fleshy thing. Yeah, I'm a corpse. And then he says, a corpse is dung, right? It's just something that breaks down and absorbs back into the earth. And then he says, dung is earth. That makes sense. Then he says, if earth is a god, okay, right, Gaia, Mother Earth, that's a Greek god, one of the most important, one of the primordial gods along with heaven. If earth is a god, then I am not a corpse but a god. Well, 
I don't know how much more mystical you can get than that. Epicharmus is saying, look, I am made up of the cosmos, of the bits that, that make up the cosmos. When I die, I just become the cosmos again. If the cosmos is a god, then I'm a god, because that's what I am. All you have to do is replace cosmos with consciousness, and Epicharmus wasn't far away from that when he's talking about mind. Then you're right there in the mystic tradition with me. You're right there. Talking about the oneness. Amazing, amazing. That's Epicharmus, okay. Next guy we have is interesting as well. He's a name you guys may have heard of, Parmenides. Parmenides is a is a very famous uh, one of these uh, early Greek philosophers and one that I wasn't all that familiar with before, but one that I really like now that I have um, because he reminds me of he reminds me of Heidegger or 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 Hegel. He reminds me of one of these um, you know one of these more modern philosophers that talked about being. Uh, we talked about Heidegger and Heigl before and Schopenhauer and some of those other guys, so I don't want to necessarily refresh you on all that stuff, but they pointed out interesting things. They pointed out things like, we take, we take this idea of being for granted. Like we call ourselves human beings, but don't really understand what that means. Because you, know, you could just say human, and nobody cares about the being part. Um, but what Heidegger and Schopenhauer and Heigl and some of these people said is that, look... We are all beings in being. Whatever it is, this reality that we exist in, it's something like what we are, and it makes what we are possible. So whether we like it or not, we have to admit that we exist in a place that we'll call being, that is something like what we are and makes what we are possible. So we are beings, whatever that means, in being, and trying to make sense of that, trying to understand what that means. What is being exactly? And it seems like it's connected to our experience, it's connected to consciousness, and it's unseparable. So the idea of our experience and what we're experiencing are not possible to separate. Now we talk like it is. When when we talk about science, we talk like it is. Like whatever it is I'm experiencing is something I can can analyze all by itself and measure it and, and tell you what it is. But that's not true. The truth of my experience, and Jordan Peterson will tell you this, is that what a thing means and what a thing is are not possible to separate. At least not for us. Our experience of them is the same. Um, and that's what science tries to do, is to separate our experience of the thing from the thing itself. And it's simply not possible. And so this is what Parmenides is, is, is going to say. He's going to say some interesting stuff, guys. The first one is... A little bit mind-blowing, and I'll I'll read it to you, and I'll explain why I think it is. Uh, Parmenides says this, For it is the same thing to think and to be. So we're talking about being here when we say to be, to exist, whatever that means. And he says that to be is the same thing as to think. What does that make you think of? It makes me think of somebody who existed a long time after Parmenides, uh, who got credit for saying this. His name was Rene Descartes, a very, very famous philosopher, one of the most important in the Western tradition, who said something like this, I think, therefore, I am. I think, therefore, I am. Okay, let's read Parmenides again. For it is the same thing to think and to be. Somebody's plagiarizing. I don't know if Descartes had access to Parmenides, but I think he probably did. Um, whether he credits him with this, I don't know. But the idea here is that to think and to be is the same thing. That's something that 
Descartes said, and it's again something that takes the idea of consciousness, the thing that's doing the thinking, and connecting it with reality, to be, to exist, and somehow to think and to exist are are not possible to separate. They're, they seem to be one and the same thing, at least for us. So Parmenides is saying that. He goes on to say, to think is the same as the thought that it is. For you will not find thinking without being, in regards to which there is an expression. You will not find thinking without being. And so this is another way of connecting the idea of consciousness to reality. You cannot get more mystical than that. To understand the oneness, that to be one with the universe, like the, like the cliché descriptor. To understand that is to, is to do exactly what Parmenides is doing. To realize that there isn't a difference between your experience of a thing and a thing. Your experience of what? Of reality, of the cosmos, of everything that is. There is no difference between your consciousness, your experience of the thing, and the thing itself. <sighs> Unbelievable. All right, what else you got? He says, Observe, nevertheless, how things absent are securely present to the mind, for it will not sever being from its connection with being, whether it is scattered everywhere utterly throughout the universe, or whether it is collected together. So this is interesting. Again, focusing on this idea of mind, which is, again, the word that they didn't have yet, consciousness, is exactly what he's talking about here. He says, Observe how things absent are securely present to the mind. He's saying that even if you aren't in the presence of a thing, you can imagine it, and it's, and it's present in your mind. Even if it's not there at hand, it's there in your consciousness. And he says, for it will not sever being from its connection with being. You can't. Beings and being are, are connected. There's no way of separating them. Unbelievable. All right, next he says, one should both say and think that being is, for to be is possible, but nothingness is not possible. Wow. So here he's saying that he's saying that the tr the truth of being, the thing that we can say reality is, the reason I can say that I am, or that things are, being. That's what we're talking about. He says, because consciousness is possible, it's possible to be. That's what we're aware of. We're aware when we are, when we exist, when we're alive. We're aware of that. But when we're not, there is nothing. There's nothing to be aware of. So this is just more, more, more of an argument about the connection between consciousness and reality. And without the observation of it, without the experience of it, does a thing exist? This is the whole, does a tree fall in the forest idea? Um, and does it exist? That's what he's saying. All right, he goes on, he says, Being has no coming into being and no destruction, for it is whole of limb, without motion and without end. <sighs> Boy. And it never was, nor will be, because it is now a whole altogether, one continuous. How, whence, could it have sprung? nor shall I allow you to speak of or think of it as a springing from not being, for it is neither expressible nor thinkable that what is not is. Also, what necessity impelled it, if it did not spring from nothing, to be produced later or earlier? Thus it must be absolutely or not at all. Nor will the force of credibility ever admit that anything should come into being 
besides being itself out of not being. The decision on these matters depends on the following. It is or it is not. How could being perish? How could it come into being? If it came into being, it is not. So this continues, and, we'll, and I want to stop here because there's a lot already. But let's start from the beginning where he says, Being has no coming into being and no destruction, for it is whole without motion, without end. What he's saying is that being is eternal. That it was never created. There was never a beginning to it. So being always is. And he says this in an interesting way. He says, um, first of all, he says, um, it never was, nor will be, because it is now. And this is this idea of the ever-present moment. It's, it's the idea of uh, you know seizing the day, as the Romans said. There is only this moment. And that's a crazy truth, but it is a truth. There is only now. Everything that was is gone. Everything that will be is, is, a, is a, a hope, you know. Only now exists, and that's what he's saying. He's saying that being is now. Then he says it's, it's whole altogether, one and continuous. So here you have Parmenides using this word one, talking about the oneness that you get from the mystic experience. The universe is one. And he said, if the universe is one, how could it, could it have been born? He says, how, how and whence could it have sprung? Right? If it wasn't created, and it will never end, that it's, it's always now. It didn't come into being. It's always now. There is only now. So there wasn't a before or an after. This is, this is, this is how he's explaining it. So if that's the case, how could it have been born? How could it have begun? begun? He says it's not. It, it didn't begin. It's always been. He says, uh, he says that differently here. He says... Um, he says, um, what necessity impelled it, if, um, if it did spring from nothing, to be produced late, later or earlier? Thus it must be absolute or not at all. And that's what he's saying here. He says, being, the thing that we experience is reality. That that's something that always is. It never started and it will never end. It always is. It's always now. It's the moment that you're experiencing now. And that, that's always been that way. It must be that way, he says. It must be absolute or nothing at all. Because it is, we know it's absolute. So this is, a, you know, again, a reasoning about something that's hard to, to hard to reason about. But there it is. And it's very mystical. I love it. All right, he says, Nor is being divisible, since it is all alike. Nor is there anything here or there which could prevent it from holding together. Nor any lesser thing, but all is full of being. Therefore, it is altogether continuous, for being is close to being. So he's saying it's, it's indivisible. And that's interesting, because it goes with the idea of, of, of the oneness that he just brought up, about it being whole, altogether, one, and continuous. That being is one thing. So to say that being is one thing and that it's not divisible, that doesn't correspond to our reality. It doesn't seem to. Right? We look around and we see many things that all seem to be distinct and different from one another that we experience differently. Right, And that makes me think again of the mystic experience which brings to mind 
as I continue to bring up, and I apologize for the example, that Terminator 2 T-1000 liquid metal substance that can shift shape and turn into anything at once, the stem cell thing that I'm suggesting is something like objective reality. What's the really there behind our perceptions? That thing is one. That thing is indivisible. And what's so interesting about this, um, and Jordan, Jordan brought this up when he talked about the Ouroboros, is that 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 oneness is um how do i put this it is man it's sometimes so hard to find words to talk about this hippy dippy stuff mm. interesting in any case, the Ouroboros that Jordan Peterson describes is is one. It's 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 opposites united. It's everything together, and it and that is the thing that makes being possible. That reality sort of erupts from this 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 idea of the Ouroboros, um, opposites united. So that's the thing that again, um, part, that Parmenides is saying is indivisible. It's it's not divisible. All right, so this brings us to the next guy. His name is um, Melissus of Samos. Um, Melissus. Never heard of Melissus as well. Uh, this guy, though, he, he lived right around the same time. Um, he wrote a book called On Being. And um, Melissus, he was actually defending Parmenides. He was, so he was somebody who I don't think knew Parmenides or was a student of Parmenides, but somebody who read him and agreed with all of this stuff about being and was trying to make a defense against him. Uh, uh, you know, uh, in support of his philosophy. So let's get right into uh, Melissus. He says, That which was, was always and always will be. For if it had come into being, it necessarily follows that before it came into being, nothing existed. If, however, nothing existed, in no way could anything come into being out of nothing. So this is, again, uh, Melissus is now kind of fleshing out some of the stuff that Parmenides was saying, and it, maybe it'll make some more sense this way. But he's saying that when Parmenides says that being was not created and can't be destroyed, that it's always there, it's eternal and constant and one, um, Milesis is saying, look, it had, to, it had to always be that way. It had to always be there. Because if it came into being, then it, then it, it follows that before it came into being, there was nothing and and if you have nothing, nothing can be born from it, right? So, so so you have to have something there to give birth to something else. It can't be from nothing. And so this is this is the rationality. Now, what's interesting here, though, is the idea of nothingness and the idea of a non-being. Those are things that weren't exactly well. Even even now, you hear me say nothing and non-being. You probably think that those words mean the same thing. And uh, that's not that's not the case. So I think Milesis and maybe even Parmenides hadn't exactly come up with this idea of non-being, which we see in Asia. Like they had this idea going back to the Taoists and the Confucius. They had this idea, and what what they meant by it is not is not nothing. It's it's something, but it's not anything like being. So that's why we're calling it not non-being or not being. It's something. It's just not anything like being. You can't understand it because all of your understanding comes from understanding being. It's something else. 
So I think that that, that was maybe missing on, on uh, Melissa's here. But in any case, it, it makes perfect sense to him that the eternity of, the, of being, it, you know, you can't avoid it because it, it couldn't have come from nothing. It had, it had to have always been here because it couldn't have come from nothing. And he goes on to say, since therefore it did not come into being, it is and always was and always will be and has no beginning or end, but is eternal. And that's exactly the feeling that you get in the mystic experience. That is the mystic intuition, that consciousness is eternal. It didn't come into being. It didn't have a beginning. It always was. It flows through everything all the time and is responsible for being. Um, it's also interesting that the Bible describes God in this way, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Um, so let's keep going. He says, for, for if it had come into being, it would have a beginning. For it would have come into being at some time, and so begun, and an end. For since it had come into being, it would have ended. But since it has neither begun nor ended, it always was and always will be, and has no beginning or end. For it is impossible for anything to be unless it is completely. Whew, boy. So that's, I mean... The reading that last sentence gives me gives me goosebumps, but I don't exactly understand what he's saying. I just want to read this last bit again. For it is impossible for anything to be unless it is completely. Whew. Boy, I'm going to have to think about that for, for a generation. I'll get back to you. He says, uh, but, but as it is always, so also its size must also be infinite. So he's just saying that if it's eternal, it must also be infinite. Um, which, again, this is we're talking about pre-scientific philosophy, so there's not exactly an explanation there. But it's, it's a way of reasoning. And it also happens, just like Democritus, happens to correspond to what we believe today with the benefit of modern science. That the observable universe... Um, is not all there is to the universe. So as far as we, as light has traveled, as far as we can see with our most powerful telescopes, all the way to the edge of existence, as far as we know, the universe extends beyond that forever. We have no, we have no indication whatsoever that the that the universe, that the cosmos, is not infinite. And that's what that's what Milesis has said. Now he says this: if it were not one. It, it will form a boundary in relation to something else. If it were infinite, it would be one. For if, if it were two, these could not be spatially infinite, but each would have boundaries in relation to each other. Thus, therefore, it is everlasting and unlimited and one. <sighs> Boy, I mean, that's exactly the mystic intuition. Exactly. And again, the evidence he's using for this is that, again, this kind of is tied to the idea that, that the word that we use when we say universe, like what we're talking about is looking out into the expanse of space and realizing that it doesn't stop, that it just keeps going. And that if it doesn't stop and it just keeps going and it's always existed, that there aren't any boundaries. The universe is one. That's what universe means. Universe. It doesn't bump into another universe out there someplace. So he's saying that it, it is one, and we can see that it's one because it has no boundaries, because there isn't another universe that, it, that it's bumping into. It just goes and goes and goes. So he's saying if it's infinite, it has to be one. So this is, again, a rationalization, but it's evidence 
to support the idea that the, that the universe, that the cosmos, that you and I and consciousness and all things considered are one thing. Thus, therefore, it is everlasting and, and unlimited and one. That's what he says. Whew, buddy. All right. He goes on, he says, This argument is the greatest proof that being is one only. But, but there are also the following proofs. And here we go. If things were many, they would have to be of the same kind, as I say the one is. For if there is earth and water and air and fire and iron and gold, and that which is living and that which is dead, and black and white and all the rest of the things which men say are real, if these things exist and we see and hear correctly, each thing must be of such a kind as it seemed to us to be in the first place, and it cannot change or become different, but each thing must always be what it is. But now we say we see and hear and understand correctly. And it seems to us that the hot becomes cold and the cold hot, and the hard soft and the soft hard, and that the living thing dies and comes into being from what is not living, and that all things change, and that what was and what now is are not at all the same, but iron, which is hard, is worn away by contact with the finger, and gold and stone, and whatever seems to be entirely strong, is worn away, uh, and that from water, earth, and stone come into being, so that it comes about that we neither see nor know existing things. Jesus. So that it comes about that we neither see nor know existing things. So what he's saying here, and this continues, so we're going to get more of this. But what he's saying here is that we know that that being is one. And we know that you can't get that you can't get something different from something just like I don't know how to put this in words exactly, but just like a human being can't give birth to a lizard, right? A human being gives birth to a human being. So from like begets like. He's saying you if everything is one, you can't get from the one thing different things. You can't. Um, it just doesn't work that way in nature. It's impossible. So if we look around the, 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 the world of our experience and we see things that look different, that look distinct, that have boundaries, even things that sort of seem to morph into and out of one another, like like uh, he said, you know, something's, something born is born from something that's dead or, you know, so that something that's hard becomes soft or something that's whatever, that, that all of these things that we see in our experience, that they can't possibly be real because everything is one now that's mind-blowing to me because it's only that's something that is only going to come out of the mouth of somebody who's had a revolutionary experience that changes their that changes that forever changes their grasp on reality where you think things are possible that didn't that you never would have considered possible before because you've seen things differently that that happens in the mystic experience, and I know of no other way. So, Milesis, as far as I'm concerned, has had a mystic experience, Parmenides as well, and probably most, if not all, of these people. Um, and what he and how he wraps this up is he says that if we see differences and distinct things in reality, that what we're experiencing cannot actually be reality because whatever's behind that is one. So now we're talking about the Terminator 2 substance behind the veil of perception, just like we've been talking about all along. And he says, he says, um, but now we say, we, hold on, uh, he says, where am I? Oh, he says that, 
so that it comes about that we neither see nor know existing things. So what he's saying is that all the things we think we see and experience and know, the things that we things that we observe about them, the fact that they're distinct objects, that they have boundaries, that they exist separate from one another, that all of that stuff is somehow false, somehow wrong, somehow showing us something that's not corresponding to, to ultimate reality, objective reality. So the things that we're seeing and experiencing are things that do not exist. <laughs> Unbelievable. This is, this is the image that comes to mind when you, when you, when you watch like the movie The Matrix or something. Um, it's like you're existing in a hologram and everything that you're experiencing seems real but isn't real. And that's what Milesis is saying. And he's getting there, beginning with what the, what the mystic experience tells you, that everything is one. And he's deducing down from there to the, this idea that our perceptions are not telling us anything real. Oh, man. Let's keep going. He says, So these statements are not consistent with one another. For although we say that there are many things everlasting, having forms and strength, it seems to us that they all alter and change from what is seen on each occasion. It is clear, therefore, that we have not been seeing correctly, and that those things do not correctly seem to us to be many, for they would not change if they were real. But each would be as it seemed to be, for nothing is stronger than that which is real. And if it changed, being would have been destroyed, and not being would have come into being. Thus, therefore, if things are many... They must be such as the one is. So this is this is amazing. I mean, I don't think that Milesis is like necessarily hitting the target while he's trying to, because I think there's some real problems with the idea of of nothing and and non-being. That those ideas are really important to understand the difference. Um, but but what he is doing is reconciling the idea that things appear to be many when they're really one. Um, that's the message from the mystic experience, and that's what he's trying to emphasize here. But he's trying to come to terms with that, and he and 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 how he's done that is by is by proposing that perception is somehow illusion, and that what you experience is not what's real exactly. All right, he he, he continues. Um, he says, and if it changed, being would have been destroyed, and not being would have come into into being. Um, oh, I, I read that one. He says, and I shall tell you another thing. There is no creation of substance in any one of mortal existences, nor any end in um, exorable death, but only mixing and exchange of what has been mixed. And the name substance is applied to them by mankind. So here he's saying that, uh, that what things are made of, that that's, that that's something that human beings have invented names for. And perhaps that's something that really is this oneness that he's been talking about, that what things are made of is really this oneness. That's something that Parmenides equated with mind. So that's consciousness. So he's saying that the substances that all these philosophers are talking about, air, fire, wind, water, all, the, all these substances that, that constitute the world, that really those things are something that, that are just words that, man, that human beings are, are proposing, that what's really there is something like consciousness. And, and that leads me to this. He says, fools, for they have no long-sighted thoughts, 
since they imagine that what previously did not exist comes into being, or that a thing dies and is utterly destroyed. From what is nowise exists, it is impossible for anything to come into being, and for being to perish completely is incapable of fulfillment and unthinkable, for it will always be there whenever anyone may place it on any occasion. Thus, insofar as they have the power to grow into one out of many, and again when one grows apart and many are formed, in this sense they come into being and have no stable life, but insofar as they never cease their continuous exchange, in this sense they remain always unmoved, unaltered, as they follow the cyclic process. So this is interesting as well. This is basically talking about the cycles of nature, that things grow and die and, you know, birth and rebirth and all, and transfer, constant transformation. That he's saying that what this is that we're seeing in our reality that does seem like that, he's saying what that is is the one expressed in a way that's not stable. So I don't exactly know what he, what he what he's getting to, but the fact that the one expressed as many is it, it it produces being, and that being is not stable that way, right? So the one is stable as it is; it's the eternal thing that has no beginning or end. But when it's expressed as many, when the one is many, that it's not stable exactly. That he's saying that that they come into being that way, but that they're not stable that way. And that's why you have this cycle of birth and death and transformation. And that what that is, he says that continuous exchange, he says what that is in, in that sense is that they're remaining unmoved in that, in that way. So this is kind of like what one of the earlier philosophers said, where, where we talked about in the last episode that you can't step into the same river twice. He's like, you know, you've got the river. The river is the oneness but it's always a different river, and that's the manyness that we're talking about here. And he said, perhaps it's that it's the always constantly changing in this cycle um, of, of nature. Maybe that's the continuous, unchanging thing. It's this process of transformation. It's amazing. It's amazing. And that's a way of looking at the oneness, of taking this idea of many and, and understanding it as one. That it's, that it's a process that's continuous and not any of the individual components of it. Amazing. Amazing. All right, he says, but he, and he's talking about God here, so, but God is equal in all directions to himself and altogether eternal, a rounded sphere enjoying a circular solitude. That's, that's poetic. I like that. So God is equal in all directions to himself and altogether eternal. And he says, a rounded sphere enjoying a circular solitude. Now I have to bring up that the sphere and the round and the circle are all symbols for the Ouroboros, for the thing that, that um, the symbol the symbol that we use to, to talk about the thing that, that gave birth to cos- the cosmos and to consciousness, the, the origin, whatever that is, God, for lack of a better word. And he's saying that that is the a round sphere enjoying a circular solitude. Solitude meaning that he's all by himself. God is the oneness. So now we have Parmenides saying that mind is the oneness. So consciousness is the oneness. Here we have Milesis, we have, you know, somebody defending him saying that that it's that it's God. So so now you have this idea of consciousness and this idea of God being equated. That is exactly what the mystic intuition is. Right on the nose. So thank you, Melissa. Interesting. 
Um, okay. He also says this, It is the earth that makes night by coming in the way of the sun's rays. So this isn't related, but it's another one of those examples that I wanted to bring to your attention where a philosopher, without the benefit of all of the you know modern science that we have, could correctly deduce that when we have night, it's because the, the side of the earth that we're on is facing away from the sun. Now, this is something he didn't have a way of confirming. He just supposed that that must be what's happening. And he happens to be right. Here's another one. Many, many fires burn below the surface of the earth. All right, I guess somebody who's seen, who's seen a volcano can probably say that. But the fact that the center of the earth is molten metal, you know, and he can say that many fires burn below the surface of the earth, it's just right on the nose, accurate. And here's, my, here's where I'm getting at. You have somebody like Democritus who proposes atomic theory that doesn't get validated until John Dalton and the whatever it was, I don't know when, modern, modern era. And then you've got, my list is saying things like, hey, it's night when the, when the part of the earth we're on is facing away from the sun. And by the way, there's all these fires burning deep in the earth, having no way of confirming those speculations, wild speculations. They happen to be right. So this is my question. How much of this other stuff that we're talking about, this mystic stuff about the oneness and, and consciousness and God being equal or synonymous, let's say, and all that, how much of this other wild speculation might be, might be true? Ask yourself that. All right, we got more. Uh, Philolaus. Philolaus of Tartentium. Uh, this is a guy a little bit later um, who wrote, he, he wrote just one book, um, and it was a book about Pythagoras or the Pythagoreans. We, we, again, we don't have any uh, surviving records of what the Pythagoreans wrote or believed. We don't have we don't have like that same sort of stuff that we can rely on. And this guy was somebody who was writing about the Pythagoreans. Um, let's see. All right, so here we go. Let me just start reading um, Philolaus. He says this: Nature in the in the universe was fitted together from the non-limited and the limiting, both the universe as a whole and everything in it. So let's start again. Nature in the universe was fitted together from the non-limited and the limiting, both the universe as a whole and everything in it. So he's saying that the cosmos and everything in it, including you and I, that we're made from, something that's not limited mixed with something that's limiting. Now, Jordan Peterson would talk about chaos. That's the one part of the Ouroboros. Um, chaos is the non-limited. It's potential, right? It's, it, could, it can be anything. Um, it's the matrix of being. And the limiting, Jordan, Jordan would call that order, the force of order, the thing that limits the unlimited, that, that takes non-being and turns it into being. Uh, that's that's the language that Jordan Peterson would use. So maybe that would that would help this make sense to you. But he's saying that the cosmos and everything in it is like that. It's made of order and chaos. It's made of the unlimited and the limiting, order and chaos. All right. He says, for there could not be, um, for there could not even be an object set before knowledge to begin with, if all things were non-limiting. So for there, so I'll, I'll start again. For there could not even be an object set before knowledge to begin with, if all things were not limited. So he's saying if if 
if everything were not limited, if we, were, if we weren't talking about a mix of the limited and non-limited, of chaos and order, and order, if everything were chaos, he's saying, there would be no being, and so there would be no knowledge. You could have nothing, because everything is one. And this is that interesting paradox from the mystic experience that's so, that's so difficult to understand and so intoxicating to try to understand. That if everything is one, there's only one thing, then it's difficult to understand how there is anything. If there's only one thing. So the idea here is, if, if there's only me, then what do I have to experience? There's nothing for me to experience. Then is there even a me? That's the question here. What am I in the absence of experience? What is consciousness in the absence of experience. Mm. It's an interesting question. Maybe nothing. Maybe everything. Buddy. All right. Here we go. He says, um, Philalaeus says, this is how how it is with nature and harmony. The being of things is eternal, and nature itself requires divine and not human intelligence. Moreover, it would be impossible for any existing thing to be even recognized by us if there did not exist the basic being of the things from which the universe was composed, namely both the limiting and the non-limited, so both chaos and order. But since these elements exist as unlike and unrelated, it would clearly be impossible for a universe to be created with them unless a harmony was added, in which way this harmony did come into being. So what he's saying here is, I'm going to use the word chaos and order instead of limited and, and non-limited. So if, so, so if, if um, you have something like that, the chaos and order or limited and non-limited, that are opposites. He says, how can you combine them? He says it's impossible to combine them unless there's a harmony between them. And this is an interesting idea because, because you're right. There, there is an idea that if you have opposites and you combine them, like a positive charge and a negative charge, when they combine, they, they, they turn into nothing. They go away. And that, that makes sense to us. But there's also this idea of like, let's say, I don't know, I don't know, I'm not a music guy, but let's say you have two notes, two music notes, and those waves, when they, when they, uh, um, if you play those two notes and those waves combined, that if the peaks or the trowels of the waves connect, that it will either, it will either serve to cancel out the sound or it, or it, it will serve to enhance the sound. And that's the harmony idea. So if two of these peaks come together, they make a larger peak and they, and they, they sort of combine. So you have this harmony here. And the idea, and I, I, this is, again, I, I wish I was more versed in music. This would maybe be, be helpful for me right now. But the idea is that you can have these two opposite things that when combined, they don't terminate each other. They create a harmony. They they exist together, and so this is the way uh, the way that we've talked about it before is talking about two sides of a coin. So you have chaos on one side and order on the other, but they're one coin, and so that's the harmony in this in this image, and that's what he's talking about. It's like these opposites come together and they don't disappear, but they create something else. They coexist as something else as a harmony. Ooh. Um, so let's keep going here. He says, Harmony is a unity of many mixed elements and an agreement between disagreeing elements. Whew, interesting. 
he says the one is the beginning of everything. So now he's talking about the harmony being one, and one with a capital O, like a proper name. And this is what we see over and over again from these pre-Socratic philosophers, that when they talk about the oneness, they use a capital O, like it's a proper name, like it's a god, but the most important god, the god that everything rolls up into. And then we have another philosopher who's paraphrasing, um, who's paraphrasing, he says this, the universe is one, and it began to come into being from the center, and from the center upwards at the same intervals of distance as those below. So this is the image of the circle again. He's saying the universe is one, and it just grows from the center. So even the universe has this, is pictured as this one circle or sphere, just like the Ouroboros, just like the, you know, the serpent eating its tail, just like the yin and the yang symbol uh, that we've talked about already. He says, therefore, it, he's talking about the universe, endures both indestructible and indomitable for endless time, for neither within it will there be found any cause more powerful than itself, nor outside it any cause able to destroy it. But this universe was from eternity and will endure till eternity, one steered by one. Buddy. Akin to it and most powerful and unsurpassable. The universe being one and continuous and inspired by the breath of nature and carried round has also the beginning of motion and change from its first beginning. And part of it is unchanging and part changing. And the unchanging part has its bounds from the soul which encloses the whole as far as the moon and the changing part from the moon to the earth. But since the moving part circles from everlasting to everlasting, and the part that is moved is disposed in whatever way the moving part carries it, it follows necessarily that one is ever in motion and the other ever passive. And the one is wholly the dwelling of, of mind and soul and the other of becoming and change. And the one is first in power and superior and the other is second and inferior. But that which is made of both these, namely the ever-running, circling divine and the ever-changing mortal, is the universe." Oh, man. So there aren't any more quotes there, but that one is a doozy. I don't even know where to begin on this one. There's so much good stuff there. So the universe is indestructible. We got that. Um, it says, it says for neither within um, the universe will there be found any cause more powerful than itself. So the universe is the most important and the most powerful cause, the self-created. That's what Aristotle will eventually call it, the unmoved mover, the uncreated creator. Um, and then he says, um, he says, one steered by one. And it, what he's saying here is that the universe, the one, that it is steered by itself, by the universe. Now remember, if the universe is mind, as these pre-Socratic philosophers are saying, consciousness. And what he's saying is consciousness steers the thing that it is. And that's true for you and me. You know, we, we drive around our fleshy human body. We steer that one. But also our planet. You think about our planet. That, the, that the, all, the, all the beings on the earth are, are taking the earth in a direction. We're changing and transforming it in, in a way that we are. And in, in some way, the whole cosmos is doing that. You know, the the um, galaxies are pulling on one another, and you know, the work of gravity and black holes and all that stuff. That that it's constantly in motion and changing and transforming. And what's doing that? What's steering that transformation? Itself. Whew, 
buddy. Um, all right, and then he says, he's, towards the end a bit, he's talking about um, some interesting stuff about the, about the Earth and the Moon, but what he's really doing is, is making a distinction between these the, um, the changing and the unchanging part of our experience. And he says the unchanging part is mind and soul, and the changing part is everything else. It's, it's becoming and change, he said. So what's becoming? Well, you and I are becoming, right? We're, we're becoming something. We're always becoming is this idea of always changing and transforming. So that's, that's what's happening. That's what's happening in the cosmos. Everything's always changing and transforming. That's something in physics they call entropy. You know, it's a fact. But the unchanging part, that's also part of the, part of the, the world, that's our, that's our soul, our consciousness, our mind. And he says, he says that is the ever-running, circling divine and the ever-changing mortal is the universe. So again, this idea of mind and soul is being equated with you and me, the mortals, but also the universe. And that brings us to Anaxagoras. What a good name, man. I love these Greek names. They're so fun to say. I wish I had boys. I only had girls. I'm not disappointed by that, but I wish I could name them some of these awesome names. Anaxagoras. What a, what a name. Uh, all right, so Anaxagoras. Uh, this is, guys, just a little bit later um, as well, about 460 BC. He wrote a book called On Natural Science. So what you're going to find here is that we, we're talking a lot about creation and being in the beginning, and we're going to get increasingly more empirical and scientific until we get to Aristotle and Aristotle's basically the first scientist as far as I'm concerned. So um, Anaxagoras, he, uh, he wrote a book called, called On the Nature of Science where, where he says that all things, all things were together, infinite in number and in smallness. He says, for the small also was infinite. And so this is an interesting idea. So he, he's saying all things are together. So we're talking about the oneness again. And that they're infinite in number, so this this infinite oneness that's all familiar from what we've talked about so far. And he says, and smallness. And then he says, for the small also was infinite. So we're talking about the beginning of things here, and the small being also infinite is is interesting. It reminds you of the Big Bang. It reminds you of this this hypothetical, you know, point where all of the matter and energy of the uh, of the universe were condensed down to you know almost nothing and that some, something happened that burst burst it open and the big bang occurred and all everything flooded out of it that even even something like this primordial pinprick this big bang that even that small thing contained everything so there's this idea of the infinite to be found in the finite that's something that Jordan Peterson talked about where he, when he said that that chaos can become order but order can become chaos so that something that you thought you understood could break down and when it does it becomes everything again it becomes chaos again because you don't know what it is it could be anything and that then this is something that we experience he's going to talk about this from a mathematical perspective and plato will do that and some others as well um so let's uh let's read on he says before these things were separated off all things were together nor was any color distinguishable, for the mixing of all things prevented this, namely the mixing of moist and dry, and hot <clears throat> and hot and cold, and bright and dark. And there was a great quantity of earth in the mixture, and seeds infinite in number, not, not at all like one another. 
for none of for none of the other things either is like any other. And as this was so, one must believe that all things were present in the whole. So this is interesting for a couple reasons. He's talking exactly the way the Egyptians and the ancient Mesopotamians did in their creation stories, where they talk about the beginning of things being one, and the oneness getting separated or broken up into everything else. So that's what he's saying. Before these things were separated off, before they were you know, divided up into being, they were together. And he says, nothing, nothing existed then exactly. And he describes it. He says, nor was any color distinguishable, for the mixing of all things prevented this. The mixing of moist and dry, hot and cold, bright and dark. Opposites, right? All of the opposites together. That's what he's talking about, the oneness being. So before things were separated from that, all of these opposites were one thing together. He said that one thing um, included a great quantity of earth and seeds infinite in number. What he's saying is, that all of the planets and all of the seeds of different things and of life were there within the one, within this combination of opposites. And he says, uh, all things were present in the whole. All things were in this oneness. He says, other things all contain a part of everything. (laughs) That's interesting. All things contain a part of everything, but mind is infinite and self-ruling and is mixed with no thing, but is alone by itself. If it were not by itself, but were mixed with anything else, it would have had a share of all things. For in everything there is a portion of everything, as I have said before. For it is the finest of all things, and the purest, and has complete understanding of everything, and has the greatest power. All things which have life, both the greater and the less, are ruled by mind. Mind took command of the universal revolution, so to make things revolve at the outset... And the things which were mixed together and separated off and divided were all understood by mind. Okay, so there's more to this. This goes on, but let's stop here. Amazing. Um, Okay, so he says all things contain a part of, of everything. And then he starts talking about mind. So I don't exactly know if he means that all things contain mind. Or, or consciousness, but it seems to be that way upon you know upon my first reading here. Um, and he, but he says that consciousness is or mind is not mixed with any other thing. It's all by itself. It's pure. It's it's you know that sort of thing. Uh, he says it's the finest of all things, the purest, and uh, has complete understanding of everything. So that's not like consciousness like you and I have. We don't we don't have complete understanding of everything. But if you can imagine. Consciousness with a capital C, if you can imagine God, well, that's something that you can understand has an understanding of everything. It has the greatest power. Um, He says, all things which have life, both the greater and the less, are ruled by mind. So there's a connection between consciousness and life, uh, which, again, that, that, that coincides with everything we've heard so far. Um, and then he also he also says that mind took command of the universal revolution. So he's talking about consciousness being responsible for the motion of the celestial bodies, the stars and the planets and, and all that. Um, okay, and then, and then he and then he's, he goes on. He says, and all were arranged by mind, as also the revolution now followed by the stars, the sun and the moon, and the air and the ether, which were separated off. It was this revolution which caused the separation off, and dense parts from rare, and hot from cold, and bright from dark, and dry from wet, and nothing is absolutely separated off or divided the one from the other except mind. 
mind is all alike, both the greater and the less. So he's talking about mind being responsible for the rotation, for the motion of, of, of the heavens. And that then that it's that motion that separates off things from the oneness. That's, that's amazing. And so, so mind or consciousness is a part of that, uh, that process that moves the cosmos. And that, that allows the Ouroboros to break off and to, and, to, and to separate into all the things that exist. So he's actually created a sort of a, of, of a, um, um, what, what, I'm trying to think of the scientific, scientific word. Um, anyway, he's, he's, he's come up with a means, um, you know, sort of a, a, a mechanical means for how the Ouroboros was separated into being, you know, he's again, not with science behind it, but just rash, just reasoning this out that this is how it might've happened. All right, a couple more. He says, the Greeks have an incorrect belief on coming into being and passing away. No thing comes into being or passes away, but it is mixed together or separated from existing things. Thus, they would be correct if they called coming into being mixing and passing away separation off. Ooh, I love that. I love that. Last thing he says is, it is the sun that endows the moon with its brilliance. Now, I added that in there just to give you another example of, of a, a vindicated, correct speculation about something that they, they didn't know. That they, they thought that the moon glowed at night because of the sun. At least this one person did. Fast forward to the modern, modern day, and that's another thing that we found to be true. That what makes the sun glow is, or what makes the moon glow, rather, is its reflection of the sunlight from behind the earth. <laughs> Amazing. All right, so point is that they, they, they deduce a tremendous amount of correct things about physics and reality. Um, and I just wonder, if, they're, if they get things like that right, is that, is that another reason for us to believe um, some of these other things? Some of these may be more, more far out things. All right, so... Diogenes, Diogenes uh, of Apollonia. This is who we're going to talk about next. Um, he lived towards the latter half of the 5th century BC. Also, he wrote on natural science, and here we go. Diogenes, what do you have? It seems to me, to sum up the whole matter, that all existing things are created by the alteration of the same thing and are the same thing. This is very obvious. For if the, if the things now existing in this universe, earth and water and air and fire, and all the other things which are seen to exist in this world, if any one of these were different in its own essential nature, and were not the same thing which was transformed in many ways and changed, in no way could things mix with one another, nor could there be any profit or damage which accrued from one thing to another, nor could any plant grow out of the earth, nor any animal or any other thing come into being unless it were so compounded as to be the same. But all these things come into being in different forms at different times by changes of the same substance, and they return to the same. All right, so this whole idea that the universe is created by um, just different combinations or mixing of, of the same substance I mean, we, we can think about that in terms of atomic theory. That's exactly what it is. You take some atoms, you rearrange them in a different order, and you have a different substance. And that's what the universe is built from. So that's, that's right there here in, in Diogenes. Um, 
but you you also see the the emphasis that he's making on um, on everything being one and being kind of uh, being kind of altered from there. He says, if any one of these were different on its own um, and were not the same, then there, then no being could 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 come. So what he's saying is all of these different things that exist, these elements, and he calls them earth, water, air, and fire. We might call them, you know, plutonium and hydrogen and helium and all these other things. And it's not important. What, what is important is, is is he says here that all of those things are the same. If they weren't the same, it wouldn't be possible to mix them in different combinations. And so they all and they all come from the same source and they all go back to the same source. Even this is something that modern science has vindicated. Einstein himself, E equals MC squared. These elements all come from the same source. What does that mean? They are formed from energy. We know that because you can turn them back into energy. That's what the atomic bomb is. You take these elements that all sprung from the same source, energy, and they all go back to that same source. They get transformed in back into energy. And energy cannot be created or destroyed. Am I right, Newton? All right, so he goes on. He says, further, in addition to these, there are also the following important indications. Men and all other animals live by means of air, which they breathe in. And, f- and, for them, uh, and this for them is both soul, life, and intelligence, and has been clearly demonstrated in this tre- treatise. And if there is taken from them, intelligence also leaves them. And so what he's saying here is that there's a connection between air and life. And if and if a and if a, a a living creature can't breathe air, can't absorb one of these elements that the world is made from, that they also die uh, as a result. So there's a combination between having these different elements in your in your being and being able to to continue to exist. Something like that. He says, and it seems to me that 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 which is which has intelligence is that which is called air by mankind. And further, that by this all creatures are guided, and that it rules everything. For this in itself seems to me to be God, and to reach everywhere, and to arrange everything, and to be in everything. And there is nothing which has no share of it, but the share of each thing is not the same as that of any other, but on the contrary there are many forms both of the air itself and of intelligence. Since therefore change is manifold, animals also are manifold and many." and not like one another either in form or in way of life or in intelligence because of the larger number of, of the results of changes. Nevertheless, all things live, see, and hear by the same thing, air, and all have the rest of intelligence also from the same. So, okay, so, so Diogenes is wrong about air being the element that is the oneness, but he does understand that it seems to be obviously necessary for life and all around you all the time in the cosmos. So, you know, this air or ether element might might just be a symbol uh, for the oneness or a way for us to un- understand it. Um, and, and he's and he's basically saying here that uh, that if we if we he he calls it God. He says for this itself seems to me to be God. So let's just call it God instead of air. Um, he's saying then that. Um, that all things live, see, and hear by the same thing, God. And all and all have the rest of intelligence also from the same. So, so our intelligence, 
how, how we exist in the world, what we're capable of doing, even that that makes us different from one, from one another and the animals and that we have in different doses, you might say, that even that he's calling, he's calling God. It's the same thing that exists and permeates all creatures that live and, and the cosmos, whether that's air or energy or what. Let's call it God. All right, that brings us to Democritus of, of Abdera. Uh, he was a little bit later, Democritus of Abdera. Um, we're getting towards the end of the uh, 400s BC, um, and we're getting towards the end of today's uh, podcast. So let's let's uh, let's get into it. Democritus of Abdera, he says, one must learn by this rule that man is severed from reality. So we heard something like that earlier, where we were talking about how the world seems might be different than 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 how it is, and that what, what our experiences are, are nothing real. They're, they're experiences, but they don't tell us anything about what's real. And Democritus is saying that here. He's saying, one must learn by, one must learn by this rule that man is severed from reality. Now, you're only going to be able to learn, to have knowledge that's real, if you start there. What, what man is, is something that's severed from reality, we don't exactly experience reality. This is what Kyle always says. Objective reality is a mystery to us. Okay, that's the beginning of knowledge, according to Democritus of Abdera. Next, he says, it will be obvious that it is impossible to understand how in reality each thing is. So he says it's obvious that it's impossible to understand how, how things are in reality. That's the, again, that's the objective reality. That's the Terminator 2 substance. It's not possible to know that. All right, he says, sweet exists by convention, bitter by convention, color by convention. Atoms and void exist in reality. We know nothing accurately in reality, but only as it changes according to the bodily condition and the, and the constitution of those things that flow upon the body and impinge upon it. All right, so this is good. This is just out, you know elucidating this a little bit. He's saying when when I when he says that reality is something that is severed from us and we we can't exactly know it. He's explaining it by saying when we taste something and we say it's sweet or it's bitter, it's that way to us, not in reality, to us. Colors they're, they're like that too. They're like that to us. We know dogs don't see colors like we do. We know, you know, butterflies and hummingbirds don't see colors like we do. So the way we see things is a convention. It's, it's in our consciousness and limited by our biology. Then he says atoms and void alone exist in reality. So they, they don't exist in our minds. They actually exist. Atoms and void. Interesting. So void we know is... Something like potentiality. It's something like chaos. That, that's that's what the Bible says existed before creation. The void. And atoms are those building blocks. Are are the things that can be built into things. So the void is like the space, the potential for things to come into being. And atoms are the things that they're built from. And those are the things we can say exist for sure, even though we can, we can really not know anything specific about them. It's amazing. It's amazing. So he says, we know nothing accurately in reality. So that's the veil of perception. Um, so this is, this is important because, it, because it, what it tells you is that there's some truth behind your perceptions that's more real than what you experience. What is that? What is that? All right, he goes on. He says, nature and instruction are similar. For instruction transforms the man, and in transforming creates his nature. 
Mm. Nature and instruction are similar. For instruction transforms the man. So nature transforms the man, obviously. Where we, we adapt to our environment, just like we adapt to instruction. Um, and in transforming creates his nature. So he's saying that, that human beings transform, and that is our nature. Our nature is to transform. That's the ever-changing pattern that makes us the, that makes us the, the you know the um, I won't be able to I won't be able to nail this analogy but but again the river that we can never step into twice the process is the river uh, that's interesting okay then he says this he says man is a universe in little man is a universe in little what he's saying there is that man is a microcosm. So what we are is something like what the cosmos is, right? We're a microcosm of the macrocosm. And if that reminds you of anything, it should remind you of something we've talked about before from the Emerald Tablet of Hermes, which says, as above, so below. So what man is like is something like what the cosmos is like. What the cosmos is like is something like what God is like. And and, And that's kind of the idea here. Man is a universe in little. The last thing that I wrote down here is is his quote where he says, We know nothing in reality, for truth lies in in, an abyss. We know nothing in reality. We talked about that already. This is the veil of perception that that what we can know for sure is really pretty small. The things that we we experience really aren't uh, objective reality. The truth, objective reality, lies in the abyss. That's the deep from the Bible, the biblical deep, the abyss, the, the, the matrix, chaos, the thing that everything comes from, the thing you see when you close your eyes, the thing you're in if you're floating through space. That's where the truth lies, in the abyss. Mm. I think that might, be, uh, that might be another way of saying consciousness even. All right, <clears throat> so this brings us to... Um, uh, Metrodorus. Metrodorus. I hadn't, hadn't heard of him either. Um, he lived around the end of the 4th century. He wrote a book on natural science, just like some of the others. He also wrote some histories. Um, but here we go. Metrodorus. None of us knows anything, not even whether we know or do not. Nor do we know whether not knowing and knowing exists. Nor in general whether there is anything or not. So that's going a step further even and, and putting that seed of doubt in our perceptions that we don't even know whether we know is what he's saying uh, then he also says everything exists which anyone perceives <laughs> everything exists which anyone perceives so this is another connection between the act of perceiving and and something existing in reality or being and it reminds me of it reminds me of physics and we talked about John Wheeler before we talked about some of these other guys um, who who talked about observation and how important it is in in these um, quantum calculations. That the idea is when you measure something, that you collapse the wave function, that you take it from a state of potential and you make it something specific. And so there's a way from the scientific perspective where observing something actually participates and making it real and changing it from something that that Terminator 2 substance, that whatever it is objectively, we'll call that consciousness, let's say, into something specific, something that you, an object that you experience in the world. 
And so that's what he's saying. Metrodorus is saying everything exists which anyone perceives. If it's something that you observe, then it's something that's collapsed potential into reality. Amazing. All right. So that brings me um, to the end of the pre-Socratics. And there's just a tremendous amount here. Uh, obviously, it took us two episodes to get through. Um, but some really good stuff. And you can see how it progresses from this kind of mythological perspective in the beginning, coming from like Orpheus and Homer. And uh, those stories start to become more about asking asking questions that aren't answered by myths, but are answered by logic and rationality. And, you know, uh, these philosophers attempts at answering questions like, how did the world get here? Well, if, if it's not, if it's not the act of a God, what might it be? And let's talk about that. So we get from there to the beginnings of science, where we start talking about what the world is made of and what, what properties these things have and the difference between objective and subjective reality. And is it possible for us to know anything about objective reality? That's what science is. That is the process of trying to determine what objective reality is, taking ourselves out of our experience and trying to understand what is being experienced all by itself. What is really there behind the veil of perception? And the pre-Socratics took us all the way there all the way there. And when I say all the way there, I'm really talking about, you know, 1900, the state of physics in 1900 when Einstein and, and um, you know, Schrodinger and all these people sh um, showed up on the scene to, to pick up, to pick up the, the, uh, the thread from these pre-Socratics and run with it. And what they've told us is all kinds of crazy things that, all, that correspond to what these philosophers proposed not unlike their explanations for why the moon glows and what what causes night and day and and you know all of these things that the in the atomic theory these things that they nailed accurately way back then so it's possible then that all of the other things that are here about the nature of consciousness and mind and and the cosmos and and you and I that there might actually be some truth there and we see it we see it in modern physics today we see it in things like the the collapse of the wave function, the role of consciousness in the act of measuring, and and how that how that you know creates um, being, how it creates being. So whether we're talking about Parmenides, Democritus, the Pythagoreans, whether we're talking about John Wheeler and Edwin Schrödinger and all these other guys, what we're talking about is understanding the role of consciousness in being. And it might, it might just be that the pre-Socratics were on the right track and that the scientists, these modern atheist scientists, the reason that they haven't made any progress in physics since 1950 is because, because they didn't follow these pre-Socratics all the way. So what do I mean by that? I mean, I mean understanding that consciousness is God. Now, whatever that might mean. So so maybe that's maybe that's the banner to pick up and carry. Let's find let's find the wave function, let's find the formula, let's find the scientific evidence that connects consciousness to being. That's what the pre-Socratics were doing. And again, they gave birth to science. And Aristotle picked that up and ran with it. So maybe we need to get back to where we started. 
and continue to explore down this particular shadowy corridor. Maybe that's what we need to do. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode. <laughs>